The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Daniel chapter 2. And the title of my message for you is Pray Like Your Life Depends On It. We're going to learn how to pray like our lives depend on it. But as we get started, perhaps you're starting to get a sense of the kind of guy Daniel was. The first chapter revealed him to be a principled man. In a day and in an age where everyone around him was bowing to peer pressure, we find Daniel purposing in his heart not to defile himself by eating the king's meat. And so where everyone else is giving in to compromise, Daniel stands on his convictions. And by standing up for what is right, he ends up standing out amongst his peers in all the best ways. Now, as we move into chapter two, we're going to learn more about him. Not only was he a principled man, but additionally, we're going to see that he was also a prayerful man. Now, by no means is this the only time that we're going to be touching on this aspect of Daniel's life. In fact, this is going to become a running theme that weaves its way throughout the rest of his story. Daniel prayed often, and my hope is that in studying his prayer life, we're going to become emboldened and inspired to begin calling out to the name of the Lord more earnestly in our own prayer lives. And that's instructive, right? Because at the end of the day, I think this is one of those areas where we would all freely admit there's room for improvement. No one in here is thinking, I am, I've got the prayer thing licked. I've just, I've got it on lock. We could all use improvement in our prayer lives. And so one of the best ways to grow in any area is, is to find somebody who's really good at it. And Daniel is going to provide us with a master class on prayer. He was a true prayer warrior. So with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and begin reading In our text there in verse 1, it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled, and he couldn't sleep. All right, at this point, if you want to pull out your sermon notes, you can fill in the first, fill in the blank, and it's this. God distresses the king. And as the curtains pull back, we find Nebuchadnezzar tossing and turning in the middle of a fitless, sleepless night after experiencing a troubling dream. I wonder, have you ever been there? (laughs) You know, dreams are a funny thing. I read this past week in my preparation for this message that on average, people have between four and six dreams per night. Isn't that amazing? How many of you had a weird dream last night? (laughs) You know, they're crazy. And the truth is we forget most of those dreams by the time we wake up, but that there are a few that, that stick with us. And while most of the dreams we have aren't spiritual in nature, they're just meaningless, there are a few dreams that God deposits in our hearts. They come directly from heaven. In fact, I was surprised to learn this. Did you know that there are 100 occurrences in the Bible where God communicates to individuals through dreams? That's a lot. Seems to be one of his preferred methods of communication. Job spoke about it in Job 33. Let's go ahead and read this verse together out loud. It's in our notes. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, 
When deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak. Now, this verse is instructive. It tells us that God has a multitude of means and methods to communicate with us. He speaks through other people. He speaks, of course, through his word. He speaks through anointed preachers. And he also, at times, speaks through dreams. Now, that raises a question. Why would God choose to speak to us through dreams? And I think I have a theory, or at least a possible answer. And that is, it's the only time he can get our undivided attention. Right? Because we tend to pack our lives with so much noise and so much activity from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed that oftentimes it can be difficult for him to get a word in etchwise. But when we're asleep, when we're unconscious, there are no distractions. And so at times God will speak through dreams. Now, when he speaks through dreams, he has different purposes in mind. Sometimes When God gives a dream, he does so using symbols, and it has a symbolic meaning. We see this, for instance, in the case of Joseph. At other times, God will give a dream to warn of of, uh, an approaching calamity. And we see this in the case of Pharaoh, who had a dream about an upcoming famine. And then there are times when God will use dreams to guide people into their ministry calling or purpose. This happened with the Apostle Paul. And then there are those instances where God deposits a dream in someone's heart because he's wanting to reveal something about the future. So he gives prophetic dreams. And the dream Nebuchadnezzar has here would fall under that category. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, I believe God still speaks through dreams to this day. It's not just something he did back then. I believe he does it today. And and I say that on the basis of what we read in the Bible. You know, Joel prophesied that one of the signs that would signify we're in the last days is that there would be an outpouring of God's spirit, that all men would prophesy that the young men would have visions and the old men would dream dreams. Now, what's interesting about that is Peter lays hold of that prophecy on the day of Pentecost, and he says, what you're seeing happen here is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, which means, guess what? It means we're in the last days. So you can expect God to speak to you in a variety of ways. And one of those ways is dreams. Now, what should you do if you feel like you've had a spiritual dream? Well, first of all, don't immediately think that any dream you have is from God. It might just as well be from the food you ate for dinner last night or something like that. But when you have a dream that is significant... You are to consult God's word. Make sure that it aligns with scripture. This is our plumb line, okay? This is, this is the plumb line of truth. Beyond that, you can begin to pray and ask God for an interpretation. You can also seek the counsel of godly friends. And so these are different things you can do to interpret your dream. But one thing you shouldn't do is what we find King Nebuchadnezzar doing with his spiritual dream. Let's read about what he did in verse 2. So the king, after this troubling dream, summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers, and told them to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then they answered the king and said, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided, If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, 
I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses will be turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive honor from me and rewards. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. All right, we've already seen God distress the king. Now we're going to see him uh, disgrace the wise men. That's the second fill in the blank in your outline. After this dream, Nebuchadnezzar calls into his chambers this team of professionals. It includes astrologers, sorcerers, magicians, and enchanters. These guys were the experts in the field, and they used divination and occult practices and witchcraft to help them interpret dreams. So basically, King Nebuchadnezzar is doing the ancient equivalent of like, I don't know, combing the New Age section of a Barnes and Noble bookstore to help him with this troubling dream. And while they could interpret dreams, there were limitations on what they could and could not do. And to tell him what, they had, what he had dreamed went beyond the scope of their abilities. And yet that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar demanded in this case. Now, it's unclear from the text why he demanded that they also tell him his dream in addition to interpreting it. One possible explanation is that he truly forgot, but he was just unsettled. And so he wanted to know what he dreamed. And then he'd be like, oh, yeah, that was it. But another possible explanation is that he did remember, but he had his doubts about these guys and, and how connected they were to the spirit world. And so he was using this event as a means of testing them. He figured if they can tell me what I dreamed, then it'll go a long way towards proving the accuracy of their interpretation. Now, for their part, these guys, they stall, they demur, they try to buy more time. They know they can't climb into the king's heart or head and tell him what he's dreamed. And so finally, in exasperation, they throw up their hands and admit defeat in verse 10. They answered the king saying, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. And no king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What you're asking is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Now, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. I want you to go back to verse 10 because I want to pull something out there. In what they tell the king, what they said was partly true and partly false. Let me explain. The first part of what they said was absolutely true. There's not a man on earth who can fulfill your demands or accomplish what you're asking. Nobody knows what's in the heart of another person. It's an impossible task. So that part was true. But the part they got wrong was what they said about only the gods know this and the gods don't live or dwell among humans. Now, that may have been true of the Babylonian gods whom they worship. They may have been disinterested and uninvolved in the affairs of mankind. But the God revealed in Scripture, he's different. In fact, throughout the pages of your Bible, you will repeatedly find God involving himself in intimate ways in the lives of his people. This is something that 
truly captivated the attention of the psalmist. And he marveled at the degree to which God seemed to know everything about him. And he wrote about it in Psalm 139. Let's go ahead and read these verses together out loud. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Listen, friend, God is not cold or uncaring or disinterested in your life. He is intimately acquainted with all your ways. He takes notice of when you sit down. Oh, look, they sat down. He takes notice of when you get up, when you go in and when you go out. The psalmist says he knows our thoughts, and we can deduce from that. He also knows the dreams in our hearts, our greatest fears. He's acquainted with all of our ways. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know this God yet, at least not yet, but he was about to be introduced to him by one of his wise men that he eschewed, that he didn't welcome into his chamber. His name is Daniel, and we read about him in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Mark that phrase. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went in to the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So Arioch goes in an effort to carry out the king's orders. He tells Daniel, I'm really sorry, but I've got to execute you and your friends. And Daniel responds, not with fear, not with panic, but with wisdom and tact. I want to drill down into those two words for just a moment. Let's remind ourselves that Daniel is just a teenager at that point, but he displays a wisdom here that goes well beyond his years. His words are measured and careful, and as a result of how he responds here, he's able not only to save his own life, but spare the lives of many other innocents. His words saved families, preserved future generations, and gave God an opportunity to work. And here's where we can start to make application. Would to God that we might become more like Daniel in this regard, that we would respond with wisdom and tact. These are two beautiful gifts that are underrated, but incredibly valuable. What are they? Well, wisdom is the ability to know just what to say. Any of you have that friend? It's like everybody kind of looks to them for the answer because they always know just what to say. That's wisdom. It is knowledge correctly applied. It comes directly from God. It's a, a gift from heaven, wisdom, divine wisdom. Now, tact is coupled with that. It's just as important as it. But if wisdom is knowing just what to say, then tact is knowing just how to say it. Now, those are two different things. You know as well as I do that if you say the right thing in the wrong way, it might not be received, right? Because there's things like tone and body language and all of this. And so I love this quote, without tact, Wisdom can't be heard, but without wisdom, tact only makes foolishness more palatable. However, when tact and wisdom are paired, you can apply knowledge in a way that people welcome it. Now, as we look at Daniel here, the way that he displays wisdom in this specific instance is by asking questions. You can come across as really wise if you just, instead of, 
you know, demanding things or making ultimatums. If, if you respond with, with questions, you can disarm the people in front of you, and that might open doors that would otherwise remain shut. And this is a tactic that Daniel employs repeatedly throughout this book. He says, well, where did this command come from? And and why is the king being so harsh? And then he goes into the king and he asks for the gift of time. And King Nebuchadnezzar gives it to him. This is notable, namely because he had already denied the wise men more time. But he gives it to Daniel. Why? There was something about the spirit that he walked and the confidence that he exuded. And, And I think Nebuchadnezzar was just curious to see if Daniel could deliver on what he said God could do. And that's what happens next. And here's where we get into the real meat and potatoes of this study. Then Daniel, verse 17, returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. We've seen God distress the king with a troubling dream. We've seen him disgrace the wise men. And now we're going to find him disclosing the secret to Daniel. That is the third point in your outline if you want to fill that in. And, and, and let's notice here that as soon as Daniel is given this opportunity, he buys himself a little time. Was it hours? Was it days? We're not told. But immediately he goes home. And what does he do? He organizes a prayer meeting with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's it's interesting to contrast what Daniel does in a moment of crisis with the way that Nebuchadnezzar responded to his crisis situation. He ran to the astrologers. He ran to the world's wisdom and ultimately found them unable to aid him or help him. Daniel shows us the right path to take by immediately bringing the need to the Lord. And not only does he bring it to the Lord, he brings it to close, trusted friends. You know, where you run and how you respond in times of crisis, it reveals a lot about you. I love what Oswald Chambers in his absolute classic devotional, my utmost for his highest, says about times of crisis. And I quote, It's not the crisis that builds something within us. It simply reveals what we're already made of. So the crisis doesn't make or break you. It just shows what's going on inside of you. As another preacher I like put it, he said, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what you got till you stick them in hot water. (laughs) And I like that because it's when the heat gets turned up in our lives that what is on the inside makes its way out. Where do you run in moments of crisis? Here we see Daniel running to the Lord, but he does so in a specific way. He goes to God in prayer. And he does that because he knows something, something that we need to to learn and grow in. And here's what he knows. He knows that there is great power that is released when God's people pray. Can somebody say amen to that? There is great power that gets released when God's people pray. Now that's An easy statement to get people to jump on board with. I think that's something we would all agree with. So why is it then that we often only turn to prayer as a last resort? (laughs) After we've exhausted every other option. You know, it's not uncommon, in particular in places like 
hospital waiting rooms, to hear people say things like, well, you know, we've done everything else. I guess all we can do now is pray. As though prayer was the last option. Can I say it like this? Prayer shouldn't be your last option. It is your best option. And when we say things like that, we're revealing how we truly feel about prayer. We don't really believe that it works. It's just kind of something we throw up there. But here we learn from Daniel that instead of turning to prayer as a last resort, it needs to become our first response. Why? Because the prayers of God's people release great power. And God desires for us to ask him to move on our behalf. The, the scriptures are littered with invitations. One of those invitations is found in Jeremiah 33, verse 3. This is one of my favorite promises in all of the Bible. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. Ask me, and I will tell you remarkable secrets you do not know about things to come. Notice with me, God is here essentially begging us to call out to him, to ask him. He's not stiff arming us or withholding information from us. He says, I want to reveal things to you, but he waits to be asked. The Bible says in James chapter four, we have not because we ask not. So we need to learn how to pray because prayers release great power. I'll put it like this. If we for just a moment, could see into the invisible spiritual realm all the things that our prayers accomplish, we would never cease to pray. We would have no trouble praying into things and praying over things. Why? Because when we pray, incredible things happen. When you pray on earth, angels are dispatched in heaven. Breakthroughs are released. Darkness gets pushed back. Grace is dispensed. The lost are found. The sick are healed. Prodigals are restored. And the kingdom is advanced. All of that happens, amen, every time God's people pray. So there's great power in prayer. And if that's one of the takeaways from this story, then here's another. The second lesson would be There's even greater power in unified prayer. Let me explain what I mean by that. Yes, Daniel goes home and he begins to pray, but he doesn't just pray. He grabs his three best friends and he organizes a prayer meeting with them. And so there's something about believers gathering together and praying the heart of the Father back to him that, that multiplies the fruit and the effectiveness of what God wants to do. Again, I want to quote to you a verse. This one comes to us directly from Jesus. He said this, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, It'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is a promise we return to often and for good reason. When you gather together, it amplifies and multiplies the effectiveness of your prayers. So clearly, Daniel had surrounded himself with the right kinds of friends, guys that he knew he could call at any time of the day or night and say, we've got to pray, and they would labor with him to that end. And I wonder, do you have those kind of friends? I mean, it's a great point of application to be made, a great time to consider. If you called your friends in the middle of the night and asked them to join you for a prayer meeting, would they? And if your answer is, I don't have that kind of 
community or network, can I suggest that you in an intentional way begin to to build that into your life because you're going to need it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, tomorrow, but I promise you there will come a time when you need prayer support around you. And we have all kinds of men's groups and women's groups and ministry groups here at the church, opportunities to pray where you can join a community of friends like that. And, and that's good counsel. The Proverbs say this in Proverbs 12, 26 about choosing the right friends. Let's read this together out loud. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Which friend group do you have? I mean, at the end of the day, take a close look at the the friends and the company you keep because they will, in large part, influence the kind of person you become. Your friends are either a wing or a wake. We need friends like Daniel's. Why? Because when you pray in concert and when you pray in unison, unified prayers, they release greater power. Now, we see that on display in this story. Quite literally, the results and the impact of this prayer meeting would shape and define history for generations to come. That's not overstating things. And by the way, that's not an isolated incident. This is a common theme in Scripture. A careful examination of your Bible will reveal that prayer meetings are oftentimes the spark that God uses to ignite moves of God, to bring about transformation in a society, or to advance the kingdom, or to birth revival. Just read through the book of Acts, and and you'll see what I mean. I mean, we're familiar with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It happens in Acts chapter 2. But did you know that that event happens on the heels of a 10-day prayer meeting where those 120 believers were gathered together in an upper room, and they were praying with one heart and one voice for God to move and God to do something? And God responded. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're threatened not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. So what do they do? They return to their community, they gather the church, and they hold a prayer meeting. And we read this in Acts 4.12, that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a prayer meeting where you say amen and the ground shakes beneath your feet? God responds when his people come together and pray. We see it again in Acts chapter 12. This time, Peter's in prison for preaching the gospel. Are you seeing a theme here? And this time, the church gathers at the home of John Mark, and they hold an all-night prayer meeting, asking God to release Peter. And this time, the Lord sends an angel who wakes Peter up, and the chains fall from his wrists. The prison doors open before him, and he walks right to that prayer meeting where they're praying. We see it again and again and again. It happens in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas. The point is this. Amazing things happen when we pray. But even greater things happen when we pray together. And one of the ways to do this is when you're in a prayer meeting and and we all kind of come with our agenda, we have the things that are heavy on our heart, but there will come a moment in time where you feel the Spirit of the Lord breathing over a particular subject or a a, a topic. And and by the way, this is what I do when when I pray for us at our communion services and I'm waiting and I'm listening and I feel the Spirit breathing on a particular topic and then we lean into that direction and that's when we all come together and we echo the core 
before us of what God is doing and how he's moving. And that's when the power of the prayer is multiplied in amazing ways. But perhaps some of you are thinking that's all good and great, but the stuff you're describing happened a long time ago. Surely God doesn't respond to prayers like that anymore. Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> Let me tell you about one of the most significant missions movements of semi-recent history. It happened in the late 1700s. It's called the Moravian Mission Movement. I'll forgive you if you haven't heard of it. But in a span of just 65 years, a relatively small group of committed Christians sent out over 300 missionaries to every corner of the globe. They impacted the world. And as amazing as that is, it doesn't begin to compare with the moment that launched or spawned this movement and then carried it forward. Let me tell you about it. This guy by the name of Count Zinzendorf, by the way, is that just not the coolest name? If you're pregnant, ladies, you're looking for a name, please, somebody name your kid Count Zinzendorf so I can dedicate that child. <laughs> Anyways, he was the spiritual leader of these Moravian refugees, and he would teach them the word, and, and they weren't seeing many results. And then one night, he decided to hold an all-night prayer vigil, and the Spirit of God poured out on that small gathering at the end of the all-night meeting, they decided, we need to keep this going. And they determined there are 168 one-hour time slots throughout the week. And they divvied that up. And in groups of two or three, they designated a place. And at each appointed hour, people would begin to pray for a mighty move of God. And they did this on the hour, every hour, day after day, night after night, seven days a week. And they did it for 110 years straight. We're talking about an ongoing, never-ceasing prayer meeting that lasted for 110 years. No wonder they saw such a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God. And I'm here to say, do it again, Lord. Respond in kind to our prayers for a mighty outpouring of the Spirit. Somebody say amen. amen. But again, some of you are thinking, that was a long time ago, Daniel. Do you have anything more recent? I do. You don't have to go all the way back to the 1700s. Just go back with me to February 8th of last year. Does anybody remember the Asbury Revival? It happened you know, on the, the college campus of Asbury University there in Kentucky. And at the conclusion of the, the weekly, regularly scheduled chapel program, there were about 20 students who came under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't want to leave. So the guy who was leaving the meeting went and told the president, and he sent out a brief two-sentence email that simply read, there's worship happening in Hughes Hall. You're welcome to join. Well, the news spread. More students began to come. Faculty became, started to come. More students came. And word got out. It went viral. And within a few weeks, roughly 15,000 people were coming from all across the globe every single day. And by its end, the revival brought in more than 70,000 visitors to the school. And they all left with the fire of revival in their bellies. Amen. And the common thread. Yeah, praise the Lord. The common thread that weaves all these stories together is God's people prayed. But they didn't just pray. They prayed in a unified manner. Again, the application is straightforward. We need to pray. 
And we need to do it together. We can't just give lip service to prayer. We have to lean in past the, the challenges and, and all the struggles that we're all so well aware of. And we've got to learn how to pray. Didn't Jesus' disciples say, teach us how to pray? I love what Jim Cimbala in his amazing book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, says. And he writes, and I quote, you can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the pastor or evangelist is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meeting. Well said. <laughs> so there's power in prayer. There's pow- greater power in unified prayer. And let me make one more point. If those things are true, then the greatest expression of God's power is released when God's people practice unified, fervent prayer. Just another layer there. What do I mean by that? Well, notice with me that when Daniel approaches Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he doesn't just say, would you guys mind praying? He says, plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Now, when you plead for something, you're not just you know, throwing up a casual, flippant, half-hearted, disinterested prayer. When you plead, you are white hot in your passion. And so this is the kind of prayer that God is drawn to and attracted by. We see this again throughout Scripture. As an example, James 5.16 says it like this, and I'd love it if we could read this one out loud. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I'll say it like this, I have no interest in just ordinary results. Anybody else? I want wonderful results. I don't want to pray ordinary prayers because they deliver ordinary results, but earnest, fervent prayers deliver wonderful results, and this is God's heart for us. You see, you can't give a half-hearted effort and expect to experience wholehearted results. In this story, we find Daniel and his friends praying like their life depended on it. Why? Because in all honesty, their lives did depend on God answering this prayer. And as they were dependent on prayer, so are you and I. We just don't know it. In fact, I'm convinced that oftentimes what we're seeking but not finding, what we're missing in terms of breakthrough is because of the absence of the fervency in our prayers. God hears every prayer. He hears the silent prayers. He hears the one-sentence prayers. He hears the prayers that are born of, out of anger and all these things. We find them all throughout the Bible. But he loves a fervent prayer. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Daniel and his friends prayed fervently. And during the night, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to him. How long had they been praying at this point? Was it, was it hours? Was it days? Was it weeks? We're not told. But at some point, the breakthrough comes. Daniel receives the mystery. And notice how he responds. He praises the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. Notice how after Daniel receives the answer, this breakthrough comes. 
What is his response? He doesn't run into his friends and brag to them, ha ha, I got the revelation. He doesn't barge into the chambers of the king. No, he pauses to give thanks and he begins by exalting God and magnifying God and lifting up the name of God for who he was, who he is and what he does. And, you know, this has been called the Psalm of Daniel. And I think for good reason, if you read it, it it resonates with so many of the Psalms that we know and love. And then after praising God, he thanks him for being a revealer of secrets. You know, the, the gods of the Babylonians couldn't help the king, and the wise men proved to be worthless. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Amen. And the same God who Daniel prayed, through, prayed to, and God delivered the mystery to, and God, God brought breakthrough to, that same God wants to bring breakthrough in your life. Are you in crisis today? Because if you're not, get ready for one and begin to prepare for it. Surround yourself with prayer partners. Learn how to pray. Pray for the breakthrough, but don't just pray. There's great power in prayer, but learn how to pray with others. Pray in concert. Pray the word. Pray the promises. Pray the heart of the Father. And then learn how to pray white, hot, fervent, passionate prayers. Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we need to do the same thing. Amen? You know, Jesus said this. He said, my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Interesting. Of all the things, he could have identified his house with the temple there in worship and by extension, you know, our house of worship here. He didn't say, my house shall be called a house of preaching. As great as preaching is, as necessary a component as that is. He didn't say, my house shall be called a house of praise or worship songs, as wonderful as worship is. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In other words, the definitive mark of the children of God is that they would be a people who pray, who pray together, who pray often, who engage the hand that holds the world and spans the cosmos and that moves heaven. This is the God we pray to. I hope you're encouraged. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.